What's up, everybody, and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. Today's episode is one of my favorites. We're talking about innovation, and we are jacked to have innovation thought leader Phil McKinney on the program. If you don't know Phil, you should get on that because he's amazing. Phil's passion is innovation. He's the CEO at Cable Labs, an author, coach, and the host of the longest continuously produced podcast ever. It's called Killer Innovations and it's been running since before iTunes. He was the CTO at Hewlett Packard. He's the author of the book Beyond the Obvious, the founder of Hacking Autism, a nonprofit using innovation to change the game in autism therapy, and he even built a fish farm in Rwanda. But I could go on and on. So buggle up, TC Beers, grab your favorite cocktail, and let's get right on into it with Phil McKinney on today's TCB. Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender. If you work in HR or make people decisions in your organization, this is the place to be. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for The Corporate Bartender. Well, welcome, everybody. Corporate Bartender, it's Wednesday, episode 83. 21st of April. This year is just whizzing by. Whizzing by. Today's going to be today's going to be a good one. We've got a special guest today. We've got uh Phil McKinney. Thought leader, is. innovation thought leader, uh and Lori's boss. So <laughs> If you guys if you guys ever were looking for a perfect opportunity to get Lori in trouble, this is it. Today <laughs> is your lucky day. I'm trusting oh, you that's people. Phil McKinney. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's good to put a face with a name. <laughs> so we will do our normal top and tail stuff, and then the middle period, we will. I will turn it over to Lori and let her get a conversation started with Phil. So get your questions on innovation mm-hmm. and uh, and anything in that realm ready for Phil. He's ready to take whatever you got to throw at him. Uh, looking across the rogues gallery, I don't see any newbies today, so we will go straight on in to the news. So twist on the news today, and I'm going to hand it to Lori to explain that. Sure. So, um, you know, when we were talking about having Phil on the show and talking about just any number of things related to innovation, this could go anywhere that y'all want it to go, but it was, I was listening to, uh, we're, we're working with a group of um, leaders in cable labs and Phil has a framework that's um, the seven immutable laws of innovation. And in his keynote, he had these two um, slides. And so I quickly grabbed them <laughs> off the screen. because so I was like, Ooh, this is really good stuff because it's, it's really, really interesting to see what the research shows about the value from innovation. And if I butcher this, Phil, you feel free to, for, to jump in here, but at the top, you see the, the, the value of creating new offerings in markets and industries, right? The, the actual percentage that's done. Right. And then you see, and that's the kind of the break for breakthrough, creating the big new stuff. And then you see at the bottom, just incremental innovation to existing offerings. And you see that companies invest l- quite a bit more in those innovation, those incremental innovations and less in the big breakthroughs. But then when you start moving across the chart and you see the impact the incremental has to revenue, versus the breakthrough innovation, what that impact has on revenue. And then you go over even further and you see the impact on your margin. 
And so it's, it's this huge driver <laughs> that people maybe don't recognize. And if, you know, the proportions are, are kind of interesting, right? We invest more in incremental innovation, but it has a smaller impact on revenue and margin, uh, you know, as you, as you go along. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then the CEO survey, I got to make this bigger because I can't, let's see. I thought this was great too, that they interviewed a group of CEOs and, and asked these questions, right? Innovation has increased in importance over the last 10 years, 92%. Yes, it's super important. Really, you know, really got to have it. Uh, innovation plays an important role in assessment of our company value. Sure, right? 73% said this, that's important. Um, confident in their ability to manage and measure innovation impact. Wah, wah. <laughs> like, um, we're not really sure how <laughs> to do this or what, how do we get our arms around this? And so you, right. The, the leaders of these companies are like, yes, this is super important and we don't really know how to do this very well. And so, you know, Enter Phil McKinney, who he knows how to do it really well. <laughs> has uh, quite quite a, a bit of experience under his belt, certainly. And so, so, yeah. so Lori, who 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 is this Phil McKinney character yeah, anyway? Let me let me tell you. I'm glad you've asked. <laughs> I'm glad you've asked. So, in addition to uh, being my boss, <laughs> uh, Phil is is the uh, president and CEO of Cable Labs. Uh, but his history, right? He's been in the technology game or the innovation game his entire career. Um, he has started more than a dozen tech startups, with a vast majority of those having successful uh, exits, including successful IP. Uh, he's the former chief technology officer at Hewlett-Packard, and at the time he retired, it was the largest technology company of the world in the world. Um, and he was with HP for about ten years, um, retiring at the end of 2011. We'll say retiring. Um, that <laughs> that wasn't working out for him. And so um, in 2012, our board of directors convinced him to join Cable Labs as the president and CEO, um, very centrally because of that that focus on innovation and, and recognizing that Cable Labs needed that kind of emphasis in order to kind of launch us into the, the future, right? Where we were and, and moving forward that we really needed to have that focus. So he came to us in uh, 2012. He's written a book. I've referred some of you to it. It's called Beyond the Obvious. Um, he's won multiple awards and in, in recognition for that book. It's been translated into a bunch of languages um, in his free time. I don't know when that is, but in his free time, um, he and his, his family, some, some uh, one specifically one of his daughters, but his family is involved in a nonprofit organization called Hacking Autism. And they um, host events to find solutions for autism therapy and employment for those on the spectrum and technologies that could be beneficial for, for people uh, working with autism. And it's, it's really kind of a passion project for him and brings innovation practice into that, right? Um, they've been, he and his wife, Michelle, have been really instrumental in supporting the development of a, a fish farm in Rwanda that also has helped fund the building of a school, a brand, a brand new school in Rwanda, completely underserved, very, very um, rural, no running water, no electricity, right? Takes a lot of innovation to figure out how to make that happen too. So, um, you know, and, and I've, I've always appreciated that all of the, the 
profits that come from the radio show and, and the book and, and speaking engagements, all of those things, um, he and his family donate to, to these nonprofits to, you know, kind of continue to, to push those forward. Um, I've also referred several of you to his, his podcast It's called killer mm-hmm. innovations. And we were just chatting with him before y'all came on. This is uh, season 17. He started this 17 years ago. <laughs> is that right? Is that right? 17 years, I guess that would that would work out. March of 2005 was episode number one. There you go. So longer than, than that. And so it's the longest running podcast in history now, I believe. Is that is that the right label for it? It's continuously produced podcast in history now. Yeah. I just I just love knowing that episode one was recorded in a bathroom in a Marriott in Arizona. That's <laughs> <laughs> Was it called a podcast? Yeah. You actually use that term? Yeah, podcasting actually got started technically with a new little feature in what's called an RSS feed in December of 04. But I remind people I was podcasting before iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. I've got listeners that are younger than the age of my podcast. Suffice it to say, you know, could go on and on, but Phil's got a, a fascinating uh, track record and, and history in this technology innovation game. We, um, from his book, Beyond the Obvious, we created a uh, basically a week long, four day, intense, immersive experience that's called the Innovation Boot Camp. And so, so we, cool. we teach that twi- you know, twice a year. Um, partly Cable Labs employees, some of our member companies, employees from there, sometimes vendors, and basically take them through the framework that's that's written in the Beyond the Obvious book. And we do this, um, like I said, twice a year, and I think I've done maybe 12 or 15 of these by now. And every time we're at these events, you know, there's there's some downtime while the the participants are doing different things, and I'll be hanging out with Phil at the back table or whatever. And every time there's some huge story that he tells. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> that happened too? It's like, how did you get to this point and not know that story? I know. I'm like, because there are so many. <laughs> still new stories. So anyways, um, I, I, the, I wanted to kind of kick things off and, and ask you a couple questions, but for anybody, you know, that, that has questions about innovation in general, certainly, but, but innovation in your own workplace, right. And how do you, how do you light that spark or how do you, how do you make that move? He's, he's worked with a lot of organizations around that too, but, but I want to first ask, so, so Phil, how did a kid from Chicago end up getting in the innovation game? Yeah, well, uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of uh, I'll give you a little bit of context and history. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, and uh, my original major was actually to be an architect. If you grew up as a kid and you have any kind of a visual arts perspective, and you grew up in Chicago, you want to be the next Frank Lloyd Wright, right? So, so I you know, got admitted to the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is where the School of Architecture was located at. And then quickly figured out that, hey, there's this new thing called computers. This looks pretty interesting. Never had put my hands on one. And actually, I was part of a Saturday, what's called a Saturday program uh, provided by the National Science Foundation. I got selected. 
to participate. So I did my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college at the same time. I wouldn't recommend it. It kind of, kind of ruins your, the senior, the, any free time to have fun in your senior year. Right? <laughs> kept, kept me out of trouble. <laughs> and given the neighborhood and my friends, it was probably a good thing. Um, but that's where the first time I really got engaged on the, uh, on the computer side. But years later, when I got recruited to my first job, I ran into, uh, got recruited by a guy by the name of Bob Davis, very well known in the software industry back in the, in the early eighties and Bob recruited me and was my mentor and my boss. And even to this day, I, you know, in fact, if you read my book, you read the dedication page, the book's dedicated to my parents who are no longer with us and Bob Davis. You know, you'll hear me talk about Bob Davis on the show a lot as you listen to many episodes, but Bob's mentoring was what really um, sparked it. It was him telling me like, Hey, you can be a great software engineer. And my background is computer software, specifically computer graphics with a very specific focus and a high speed pattern recognition. So if you hate facial recognition or fingerprint biometric systems, I'm sorry. It's your fault. (laughs) You know, my technology is actually used at the FBI for the, uh, the FBI, uh, uh, automated fingerprint identification system, what they call APHIS. So if you ever get busted and your fingerprints go to the FBI, it uses a technology called Blitzmatch, which I invented, and, and it's used both at FBI and at and at NSA and CIA. So you know, got got get some of those histories too. But, so uh, so so that's how you knew this COVID thing was going to be as bad as it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll plead the fifth on that. On my, <laughs> my inside source early on on the, the cable apps, why we reacted so quickly when uh, COVID was coming. Um, but Bob Davis put me on a rotation where he said, you can be a really great software engineer, which I classify as clearly an I-shaped individual. You're, you're deep in one area of expertise. And he said, the value you can generate is really being T-shaped, meaning a lot of different experiences, whether that be roles in organizations or across multiple different industries. And so he actually rotated me. I spent six months in finance. I spent six months in sales. I spent six months in advertising and marketing. I spent, you know, and so it was that experience of those rotations that really kind of laid my, you know, my foundation. And then I actually, Bob, I actually followed Bob to three other companies. That's how I ended up in Silicon Valley. Bob's now retired. He drives a school bus for special needs kids in Phoenix, Arizona, but he's now re- long retired. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it also reinforces the, the whole concept of mentorship because I think when you're at, you know, you're, 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 you're 22 years old, you know, looking at that first job, wide eyed, you're going to go change the world, <laughs> you know, you need somebody to give you a little perspective and point you because you some your own your own expertise your own capabilities. In many cases, we're just blind to ourselves, and just having that right mentor say the right thing at just the right time, you know. So, what at what point did you decide to go for it and start a company? <laughs> Any number of them. What you know? What what is what's that like? <laughs> Well, let's see. My first, well, you know, when when uh, we went to Silicon Valley, went to work for a small, very small company, only six employees. 
um, called Individual Software. It's actually still around, you know, and a product I built for them, you can still go to their website and buy it even today. You can go into a Best Buy and buy a product that I uh, created for them. Uh, so, you, so seeing the small, because my first company, the company that Bob Davis was at, was actually a division of Prentice Hall Publishing, huge book publisher and training publisher, et cetera. Mm -hmm. In fact, I started right in my first job with Delta, a company called Deltac, Division of Prentice Hall, which is a training company. Lori's going to think this is funny because we just acquired a training company at Gable Labs. <laughs> so, I feel like I'm going back to my old roots and training. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything just circles around. Um, so then, but going to Silicon Valley and seeing, you know, small companies and then Bob and uh, his wife, Roxy, and myself, Bob and Roxy started a company. And then I joined, I was the first employee. So I went from a 400 person company to a 10 person company to a two person company. So you just kind of had this natural of Vortex. And after that, then I started my own company, my first company after that. And then I was a founder of a company called Thumbscan, Fingerprint Biometrics. That's where my, that work came from, Gordian Systems. Da, 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 da. And as Lori mentioned in my bio, I, I did 12 startups uh, before I was one of the five founders at Telligent, which we started in 1996. And that's the one we grew that to 3 billion. And we did the IPO um, for that. So that was my first, what I would call meaningful exits. And then that was my first retirement. So I retired in, uh, in 2000. That was my first retirement. And then I did my second retirement was post-HP. So I totally, totally suck at the retirement thing. <laughs> my, wife, my wife has outlawed the R word. You know, you know <laughs> I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> So, you know, we, it, it's uh, awesome to hear about all the successes, right? All of the, the, the big wows that happen, but what's been, you know, what, what are some of the biggest personal learnings that you've heard from stuff that didn't go well, the things that didn't go planned, the, the skinning of the knees. What, what do you think about there? Well, there's, there's lots of those, right. You know, and It'll, and, and look, you know, the, the thing that people always look, you know, particularly if you're, if you're not familiar or if you're, for those that are not in Silicon Valley or not familiar with really, you know, some of the lure of the valley, you know, people are always shocked by the fact that VCs, you could have the biggest blow up. You could, you know, lay on face down and just totally torch a business, dust yourself off next morning, whip out a business plan on a napkin and raise $500,000 in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Right. The VC's perspective is, is okay. You've learned what failure feels like. I yeah. mean, you like really planted it. And what you learn in that experience is you will do anything to avoid that experience ever again. Right. You will do anything never to have that experience. So a lot of it is, is look, you know, failure is just part of, of the learning process. Right. You know, if you, if you're looking for perfection, you know, you know, go work, you know, go, go work for a company for, and do the punch the clock for, for 40 years and get your gold watch and go retire at the end type of a thing. But if you've got any drive where you want to be a, a change agent or you want to leave the world, you want to have an impact on the world on impact on the organization, it's, that's related to risk. And uh, in the innovation game, 
you know, a good innovation organization, you better be ready to have a high level of tolerance of failure. You better have, uh, you know, be willing to accept a 90% failure rate. And that's interesting because the cable labs, you know, we're an innovation lab. That's all we do. That's our mission in life. And the CEOs who make up our board. So this is the CEO of Comcast, the CEO of Charter and Cox, and, you know, all the big, you know, Virgin Media and Vodafone and Jcom in Japan. They all sit on the board. And the CEOs came to me early on and they're like, well, we want to take a look at the innovation projects, the pipeline. And then I'm like, nope. They're like, what do you mean? (laughs) I said, because you do not have the mental fortitude as a CEO to look at 90% failure rates. Right. If you had 90% failure rate at Comcast, Dave Watson, you'd be fired. Mm -hmm. Right. We're different. So thank me for the fact that I'm shielding you from the stress of watching 90% failure rates. I'll show you the good stuff, the stuff that works, but you're not, we're not showing you the, the 90% failure rate because you just don't have the fortitude to, to tolerate it. And that's, for an, from an innovation perspective, it's probably one of the biggest learnings is you can get yourself all stressed out and what failed yesterday and you know, have sleepless nights. And, you know, if you do that, you're not, you're going to, you're going to have a hard road to hoe if you want to be a winner in the innovation game. You got to take the risk. You got to be willing to try things nobody else has tried. If it fails, you're like, okay, great. I learned something else. I won't do that. I'm going to try it this way this next time and see if that, you know, opens the door. You know, you know, I remind myself of, 12 startups. Lori was kind in the saying that the majority of them ended up successful. I would say probably 55% of them were successful. That's most. That's a majority. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're total like the match burn, burn, burn it down, you know? (laughs) So I mean, so I've been there (laughs) happened just once, you know, but you get, you have to get comfortable with the fact that you can dust yourself off and, Mm-hmm. wake up the next morning and pick yeah. up the pieces and figure out what the next thing is and, and go off and do it. It's, it's, it's that little bit of once you did it the first time, the first time you had a failure and you totally face planted it and you got, get yourself up and the next one, like, Oh, this is working out pretty well. And then you get the confidence like, Hey, anything could happen, but I've got, I've got enough confidence that I can figure it out and go and, and go do something, mm-hmm. you know, find, yeah. find something else the next day. I love the the story that you tell about, I think it was with, was it Vail Resorts where you were speaking to their like senior executives um, and and you you brought them, it, it was a multi-day thing. Well, you tell the story, you know what I'm trying to say. You tell it better. Yeah, so I, I was invited <laughs> by the CEO for Vail Resorts. It wasn't too long after I came to Cable Labs and he had read the book and then heard that I had actually moved to Colorado. So he reached out and he was hosting a, uh, uh, an annual meeting. They bring together the top 300 people at Vail Resorts from all of their resorts to Keystone. So he invited me up to uh, spend two days with the leadership team and present as part of the, as part of the session. And part of the challenge that Vail Resorts has is, is, if you know any of the history of Vail Resorts, it got started by a bunch of army buddies who post, you know, coming out of the military and they were all on, you know, the, the, the mountaineering division of the army. Right. So these were all skiers and, you know, and, uh, et cetera. And they, they all left the military at the same time and said, Hey, why don't we, you know, 
do this thing we love and find out a way to make a business about it. That's how Vail Resorts got started. The problem is, is all these guys came out of the military. So what's the military? Very procedure oriented. So they've got all these big manuals. In fact, they tell the people exactly how to groom the mountain. Don't vary. You do it exactly the Vail way to groom the mountains. So now fast forward, you know, and they were trying to instill innovation in the, into the culture of Vail, into a culture that had a very military standard procedures, follow the procedures, do not vary from the procedure. Where's the innovation SOP? Yeah, where's the innovation <laughs> SOP, exactly. And so, uh, and he was asking for help on how to encourage people. Well, the problem is, is people, you know, are, you know, in those kinds of cultures, if you don't follow the procedure, then you get reprimanded. You get to have the tough conversation with HR or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and how do you encourage people to be able to take risks, right? So how do you get people out of that, out of the fear, right? That if I'm going to make a mistake, it's going to destroy my career or whatever. So we set up this program and all 300 people are in the main ballroom at this event in Vail. And the process was, is every coming back from break all across all the breaks for two days, one of the executive team opened up the next session by spending eight minutes at the top of the session, standing up and sharing their biggest failure. So they had to stand up, you know, so the head, head, chief financial officer, the chief innovation, uh, information officer, head of sales, they had to stand up in their, and share in their career their biggest failure they ever had. And the point was, is I had this like, you know, and, and then they got into outdoing each other. So who had the biggest failure? Um, and then, but it got to the point where people realized, look, you can have a huge failure and still be the CEO at Vail, and still be the CFO at Vail, still be the, right? And so it was an encouragement like, hey, if they failed, and, my, and any failure I'm gonna do is not gonna be big, it's not be as bad as that guy's, then I'm good. You know, I can, I, I, I can get comfortable taking the risk. And that is the biggest hindrance to innovation is fear. And what I remind people is, is what does fear stand for? False evidence that appears real. <laughs> we we as humans we can self-talk ourselves into thinking like oh my god if this thing blows up all of a sudden i'm gonna lose my job if i lose my job i don't have any money i don't have any money how am i gonna pay my mortgage i'm homeless and we make this huge leap from i'm gonna try this little experiment to i'm homeless <laughs> and we can we can talk ourselves into so much fear that we just oh, we're not gonna try it because you've already jumped to the worst possible you know outcome and it's it's getting people over the fact that, you know, we're in many cases we're blowing this way out of proportion and you can manage the risk so you can try some things and yes, it may fail, but it's, you can set it up. So it's not like, you know, you don't burn the house down in the process, but you can actually, you know, push yourselves to, depending on where your comfort level is on taking some risks. So, so how do you coach leaders of organizations who, because it's, it's hard, right? Maybe me as an individual contributor, I've got that spirit or I've got that willingness, but if I don't work in a container in which that is valued, that's super hard to do, right? So some yeah. of it is about culture fit. Some of it is about where can I actually 
thrive with that mindset. But but when you're working with leaders of organizations who recognize that they want to create this, like how do you how do you get them there? How do you introduce them to that? How do you make it comfortable for for the leaders who aren't comfortable in that space? Well, I mean, one is, is you, you, you're not going to turn somebody um, around and just make them, you know, knock it out of the park, right? We were talking a little bit about incremental innovation versus game-changing breakthrough kinds of innovations. Incremental innovations are just fine, right? And what I tell people is, is if you, particularly if, even if you're an, in, in, an individual contributor, but you're trying to be an innovation influence inside of an organization, just find some early quick wins that you can push a little bit. So you grow into it. It's not like I got to go from here to here. You just kind of grow into it. Get a couple wins, you know, attract, find some people in your organization who are kind of like-minded, go to lunch, you know, and, and you build your way, you know, you build your way into it. If you, but, but the challenge in a lot of organizations is, is you still have to get air cover. You got to go find somebody in a leadership role who is, you know, maybe that person who uh, has an innovation heart, but they kind of got burned out, you know, trying to do it before. Right. So you got to you know, search around a little bit and find somebody who's in a leadership position who you can get to kind of be a little bit of a sponsor. You're not asking for them to take all, you know, take the heat for you, but you want somebody who can kind of give you a little bit of air cover and, and uh, you know, be, a, be a little bit of a voice of, of helping you champion the importance of innovation inside of an organization, because, you know, you know, we're Lori and I are, you know, teaching this program around my, the seven laws of innovation. And there's a whole story about how that came together. You know, you know I'll talk about the you know, HP and it's not so great days. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but, but one of the key law number one, in fact, of the seven laws is the law of leadership, right? And that's leadership within a team, leadership within an organization, leadership, you know, on a more broad, you know, context. So you have to have some form of a, a of, of leadership that's going to support innovation. Otherwise, you're just running into what what I refer to as the innovation antibodies, the naysayers. Oh, that'll never work. We've tried it before. It's going to cost too much. You know, somebody else has already thought of that. I, you know, think of every naysayer's negative comment on one of your ideas. We've all run into them. And if you don't have somebody in the leadership organization that's supportive, that becomes a challenge. And in some cases, some organizations just um, are not, they're going to be challenging. It's just going to be hard to do. And you need to make, and people need to make the decision, is this the right organization, yeah. you know, for what it is. But I wouldn't throw the towel in. I've seen organizations that 99% of people would write off, but you get the right person in there, mm -hmm. the right personality that can attract people to a vision. And that's what innovation is. It's establishing a vision of what this organization could be like if you could bring the organization together mm -hmm. yeah. around this. So, yeah. so uh, Mark put in a question in the chat. Do you see a difference between private versus publicly traded organizations with their innovation tolerance? And I would toss in there um, your forays into the government and military organizations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, 
Not as much as you think, other than the, the challenge on publicly traded is the issue that you run into on quarterly results. You know, the, 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 the 10 Q gauntlet that you got to run every quarter. Right now, it's not to say that organizations, you know, shouldn't do both and they should, right. You got to be a little bit schizophrenic because innovation's a long game. You're not doing innovation for the, the product that you're going to release in six months. You know, that might be an incremental, but innovation's a long game. You're betting, on an effort that's going to be two, three, four, five plus years out, right? It's the long game, but you don't get a free pass. You still got to deliver the quarterly results. You still got to bring revenue in on the existing products or services that, that are being provided. So you can, you have to do both and you got to keep both concepts, you know, in your head at the same time. But the, uh, you know, the, uh, the publicly traded companies are challenged because of the, of the quarterly result problem. You've got to deliver those results um, and you got to, and you got to deliver on those. The other problem with, with publicly traded companies is, is you're forced into an innovation metric that is absolutely bogus because wall street looks at innovation. Uh, they refer to it as the R and D spend as a percentage of revenue. So look at, you know, if you look at your top line revenue, what's the percentage you're spending on R&D? And it is an absolutely bogus metric. It is non-predictive of any future. There's no correlation between that number or anything in the future, right? And, and that's the problem because Wall Street analysts, some consultant, I don't know who came up with the original metric, but it's a totally bogus metric. But public companies, they get looked at, there are 10 Qs, people rip into it, trying to find what it is. By the way, uh, Apple, um, at its peak, when, uh, when Steve was still around there, they were averaging a little over 9% of revenue on, on R&D. Okay, you think, okay, that's a great number, right? If you looked at Apple today, it's probably three and a half, three and three quarters percent. You're like, oh my gosh, they, they're not spending as much. No, this is the problem with, I'm amazed at how few people understand statistics in <laughs> today's world. <laughs> you know, um, you know their the, the revenue is 20 times bigger. Yeah. If, you at, if you kept yourself at 9% of a 20 times bigger revenue, you couldn't burn the cash fast enough. You couldn't get enough matches to light it on fire fast enough, much less spend it. But their total R&D dollars have increased significantly. Now, you can argue whether Apple you know, is, is delivering the same kind of innovations as the original iPhone launch and those kinds of things. But, you know, you end up with public companies ended up with metrics that get forced upon them, EBITDA numbers, et cetera, that make no sense. And particularly for innovation, there's some bad metrics that will force organizations to make bad business decisions. And that's one of my kind of soapboxes that I get it. Private companies, private companies can make long bets. And that's really where the big advantage is. Uh, Bose, Bose headphones, Bose stereos. Um, I've gotten to spend a fair amount of time with the, with the Bose company. Uh, Dr. Bose, who's the founder, professor at MIT, great. Uh, Dr. Bose's son, Vanu Bose, also a PhD from MIT. And I called I, Vanu, I always referred to him as a kid. 
because he's was was 15 years younger than me. Unfortunately, Vanu uh, died fairly young prematurely from a heart condition. But he invited me up. We we got to know each other, spent a lot of time, and I got to go up to Bose. And Dr. Bose, the founder, he he had technologies that he had invested in and was working on for for the longest one he was working on was 42 years. <laughs> 40, you know, how many organizations will go more than 18 months on an idea? But 42, he's private. He, you know, he he doesn't, he's not answering to shareholders, he doesn't have he can make the long bet. And that's where the difference really comes in to between private and public. Now, government, on the other hand, I've been doing a bunch of work with, um, uh, well, at that time, he was undersecretary, um, Hondo Gertz, for U.S. Navy, Navy Research. Um, and he was uh, 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 undersecretary under the Trump administration. And when President Biden won, um, Hondo was going to leave. He was obviously made, he assumed that he would be leaving his role. He was a 35 year colonel in the Air Force. Um, and then it turns around and uh, Biden asked him to stay. And now he's up for deputy secretary of the Navy. <laughs> so, but, and Hondo brought me in and we've been teaching workshops for U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Navy, um, on innovating, really exciting stuff, procurement. How do you fix the procurement problem within the government? Wow. <laughs> Good luck. That's a big problem. That is, you know, that's what, well, that's what I refer to as a wicked problem, like <laughs> really hard. Um, and the government, though, from the standpoint, you know, people kind of write them off, uh, like, uh, you know, they're just kind of, they're all process geek. No, the people in the government, really smart. We way underestimate them, and they want to change. They want to make things better. But, you know, the what I refer to as the corporate hairball problem, <laughs> corporate hairball is, is, you know, something breaks, some employee does something wrong or whatever. So what does someone do? They put one, they put a process in place yeah. to prevent that employee from doing something. So that's one more hair on the hairball. <laughs> some employee does something else crazy and they put one more hair on the hairball. So everybody adds hair to the hairball. Nobody ever takes a hair off the hairball. <laughs> Right? Are, you, are you describing HR, Phil? I think you're describing HR there. <laughs> Lori gets to hear this all the time, and now she even catches herself. And she'll say something, she goes, I'm not talking about a process. <laughs> don't use that word. <laughs> Lori's Lord, no, don't use the word, don't use the P word in front of Phil, right? Because it's added on and added on and added on, and we just get this complex thing that you know adds friction to the organization and frustrates staff and you know and you it's know, always a, and it's always about the edge case it's always about the half percent situation yeah right and I, and I have a really simple answer for the for the edge case fire them <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem Right. And this is one of the things I tell I when I because I, I coach CEOs. And one of the things I tell CEOs is, and the CEOs will, you know, particularly CEOs are new into an organization, right? You know, and they come to me, you know, and we're chatting or whatever. And then after a while, you know, things, you know, they they've made some changes and now they're kind of in the in the groove or whatever, but they're still complaining about some part of the organization, or whatever. And I go, look, 
You get the organization you deserve by the worst actions you allow to happen. If you allow someone on your staff to get away with something, you tolerate it, you deserve what you get. Because that one person will infiltrate the rest of your organization. So you get what you deserve. So if you don't like what you're getting, change it. Change it. Don't whine about it. You get what you deserve based on the worst actions you allow happen. And, uh, you know, you take ownership. And, you know, in, in the case where people are doing, you know, like expense, you know, games, right? You know, people, you know, it used to be you tore the receipt off of the bottom of the restaurant receipt and you stuck in your pocket and you kept it just, just in case you needed to, quote, submit a cash, you know, you know, right. You find find all these games people play. And when you find somebody that's abusing the system, the the simple thing is not to change the travel policy where, you know, those kinds of receipts aren't allowed, or you need two forms of ID or, you know, whatever crap you do, which then impacts all of your staff. Fire the person who was fire that guy. Cheated, who's cheating the system, everybody else kind of figures it out. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I'll fuck the hairball. <laughs> hey, hey, Phil, we had a question come in from Evans. He said, uh, there's actually a couple in there. Um, if a person is I-shaped, what steps would you suggest for them to becoming T-shaped? What's the path? Well, a couple things is, is if you've been in the kind of a, of a single role in a single part of the organization, look at what your skill set is, not just your job function, but I mean, what you're really, your skill sets, your skill characteristics, you know, good people, person, communicator, charismatic, or detailed oriented, you know, whatever, take those characteristics and see if there's other roles within that organization that you could potentially either, you know, step up and almost volunteer to say, Hey, I, I, I can come over and help that team there, you know, and give, give them a skill set that maybe they're lacking or move over and take, you know, take on entire roles. I've done many parallel moves. It's not always a promotion move. Yeah. Take a parallel move. twice in my career. I actually took a step down role. Yeah, right. Because, oh my God, you're sidetracked your career. Right. It's like, mm, no, nope. Because mm-hmm. you, know, you get it, it, it is about that experience, and I've done everything from, you know, big six consulting. I ran the global telecom consulting practice for Computer Sciences Corporation. I've done, uh, you know, venture capital startups in the biometric space. I've done training companies. I've done telecom uh, building companies. I've done, you know, telecom launch. You know, we launched an entire telecom company in the form of intelligent right so it's all been it is that variety but you can do it within a single organization like hp people at hp could you know spend their entire 25 30 40 year career at hp and be in completely different industries and doing completely different roles in different parts of the world Mm -hmm. and that's great too and it makes and in fact one of the things i i love about hp is is they're being on rotation so if you're on, if you're identified as a high potential employee or high potential executive, then HP wants to put you on rotation. They want to put you in Europe for two years. They want to put you in Hong Kong for a year. They want to put you in a product role and in a P&L role and a support role. And it's giving you those variety of experiences that really round you out. Because what you want is you want to be the utility player. 
It doesn't matter what part of the company, what the technology is, what the product, what the it doesn't matter. You're the utility player. You're the person they can drop in and you can rock it because you've got, you've done so many different things and learned that, Hey, guess what? I can be pretty flexible. I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can, I can manage people, you know, employees and, and work in Germany with all the union labor laws. That's a whole different category. You go to Hong <laughs> Kong. I opened up the Hong Kong office for CSC and I lived in Hong Kong. So you're the guy with a suitcase and that's, that's the entire company. <laughs> you are carrying the entire regional company in your suitcase. You're, you are the one guy and you got to build up the chart. But you do that and you go, well, I, now I know how to do this. I've got that experience. It's about being the utility player. When I came to Cable Labs, it wasn't like, I had 25 years in the cable industry, or even I was a, a, a cable tech guy. It wasn't where I came from. I came, you know, HP. I was, you know, devices, you know, building servers and printers and laptops and those kinds of things. But you know, if you if you if you've got that variety of experience, you want to be that you know you want to be that utility player that it doesn't no matter what goes wrong, that's the person I can drop in. And they can run it. And I and I love what you said about even volunteering for it, right? It's it's not a it, you can't always be passive and wait for the opening. Sometimes it's about recognizing like I can totally do that thing and and being proactive about it. Um, plus that demonstrates a, a characteristic of you that's going to be valuable to the organization uh, too. And Laura, you had a got a good point, right? There's a lot of times when you know that that thing over there that you're really interested in and there's like a list of five things that they need skill set wise and you sit there and you go i got four of them but i don't have the fifth one so i'm not gonna apply (laughs) wrong (laughs) like i got four i'll learn the fifth on the job i'll learn really quick you know give me a shot right so you gotta you gotta ask you know in fact you know in my case you know, and this and this, and you know, Lori, and I shared this with Lori, and it probably drives Lori nuts, you know, <laughs> early on, right? And you know, Lori, I now have Lori do all this new higher salary negotiations. I don't do it <laughs> because I just, as a policy in my entire career, I have never negotiated my salary. I've never countered any offer that I've ever been offered in my salary in my entire career. Even when I came to cable apps, I didn't negotiate. And it, Lori's smirking, right? Because that <laughs> knows the story. And she knows that's I now put her because everybody wants to negotiate. It's just like, it's so foreign to me. <laughs> I'm like, you kind of have to do that, though, sometimes. <laughs> I'll talk to him. <laughs> They said no, Phil. <laughs> but, well, that, you know, but, that, but that's been my that's been my history. What I have focused on though is keeping my eyes open where I think I can learn. Mm-hmm. For me, it's all about where is it I can learn. Where is it that I'm I'm gonna I've got part of those skills, but I don't have that experience. And boy, that would really mm-hmm. you know round out my career. So mm-hmm. I have three kids. My youngest, Logan, he works for Disney. He's been at Disney 12, 13 years now. He's ba- they had him in Orlando. He went to Anaheim at Disneyland, and now he's back to Disney World, right? 
So at Anaheim, he's on the advanced management track. So they're moving him around to give him a variety of experiences. So he calls me up one day and he goes, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm up, I'm doing my next rotation at Disney. And I'm like, Oh, great. Where, you know, and they, they asked him, where do you want to go next? And he goes, yeah. And I'm really excited. I asked, I told him that I wanted to, I wanted to go to sanitation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? You're talking about like the guys that are all dressed in white with little brooms that walk around the park and sweep the park. He goes, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, explain this to me. Why <laughs> sanitation? He goes, look, I started off in, in rides and attractions. I have done uh, the hotels, the resort side of it. I have, um, you know, I've done uh, catering, food, the food side of it. He goes, now I'll have sanitation. The only thing I haven't done would be retail, the stores. Other than that, I've done 100% of all the management leadership roles at Disney. And he says, I want to make sure I can check all those off. he, He says, I think it'll put me in the best position for any opening role that pops up. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going to take credit for that. (laughs) You learned that from me. You've been listening. (laughs) I'll take credit. You know, I'm I'm sitting in in my head going, oh, crap, this kid is smart. (laughs) He has figured out out the game. (laughs) So, Phil, Phil, we had another question. Uh, This one's from David. He wants to know if you can talk about what you've learned along the way in managing the board relationship, <laughs> specifically overactive board members, quick turn of investment types. How do you how do you balance innovation with a set of board expectations? Yeah, well, that that can be tough. Now, you know, fortunately, like for instance, at Cable Labs, uh, when when I got approached because I'd retired out, I'd left uh, HP. Uh, December 31st of 2011, Meg Whitman asked me to stay till the end of the year, which I did. And I stayed literally <laughs> till uh, the end of the year. <laughs> there, was nobody, there was nobody for me to even hand my badge into my, on my last day. <laughs> um, and then I retired. Right. And then I got contacted. I was, I was retired all of like uh, two weeks. The phone call came in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, you don't want to retire, you know, right? And in the CEOs that make up the board at Cable Labs, though, came with me specifically. They knew they needed to get, you know, Cable Labs was wheels had fallen off the bus and it was out in the weeds. You know, it was in pretty rough shape. Um, but they they wanted the innovation piece. But even in that case, you're like, oh, that's a great job. They get it. You know, 99% of them don't get it. They think they get it. Mm-hmm. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I wouldn't take the position. My requirement was, is that every member of the search committee, and there were uh, seven CEOs on the search committee, they each had to give me one eight-hour day in their offices. So I traveled. I went to Atlanta for Pat Esser Cox, and I went to uh, uh, St. Louis for Jerry Kent, you know, and I literally made them clear their calendar and give me an eight-hour day. I'm like, I'm going to explain to you what innovation really means. Mm. And I want to make sure we're on the same page before I walk out. Because I said, if you're looking, you're, you want to bring me in because I'm the four, I'm the retired CTO from HP and I'm just window dressing, you know, go hire somebody else. I'm, I'm retired. My wife and I are moving to Nashville. That was, that was the original plan was Nashville. 
And, uh, <laughs> and it was five months. Cause I, I'm like, you guys have to help convince me that you're really interested. Now that's a unique role. If you're in an organization where you're a leader and your board already exists, or you're a new startup, or you get new investments and you don't control the investment decisions and God forbid you got private equity, <laughs> you know, uh, invested, then you got a little bit of a different challenge. And it's, and it's a lot of vision casting. You've got to convey the strategic story as to what the organization will be like on the other side. Once the change is made, once you've established an innovation approach, first off is just getting a culture in place. Most organizations have what I refer to as an accidental culture. You know, they don't, they don't think about culture in a, in a way that you really, you want to be, you know, to be deliberative about it. You, you know, and I intelligent, we had an accidental culture. I, you know, five of us, the, our chairman of the board was a guy by the name of Alex Mandel. He was the former president of AT&T. And we ended up hiring a lot of people from MCI and Bell Atlantic and all the old Belco, you know, Bellhead companies and all that. But we had an accidental culture. We didn't, we weren't deliberate about the design of the culture. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to make a bar bet with anybody on here. Lori's giving you a signal. Don't take the bet. <laughs> a bar bet with anybody on here that I have the craziest HR stories you have ever heard. <laughs> ever heard. I, 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 I think I think we have to have a I think I think we're gonna have to have a special episode yeah. just for that. Yeah. <laughs> I shared I shared one in the seven laws workshop last week and people didn't believe me. I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's to have a crazy off on that one at a, at a later point. (laughs) I think we can out crazy you. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Pretty bad. I think we should have an episode where we each bring our one just crazy (laughs) HR story. I'm so down for that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Maybe we just name to protect the guilty. If we don't record that one, that's like serious (laughs) silence. There. You're not going to qualify for the uh, Apple Podcast (laughs) flag. (laughs) (laughs) At least for the ones I would share with you, it would not not qualify for that flag. (laughs) You would have explosive <laughs> we'll invite you we'll invite you to that one phil you bring up just your, just to compete your... so Go there, ahead. yeah so there's one more question from from ruby and i think this is really really spot on great question so innovation requires so much continuous learning which can be uncomfortable and risky and fearful for some so how do you coach someone where in they're in the that turn that conscious incompetence right i know that i don't know <laughs> how to do that thing but how do you how do you get them to move out of the fear and discomfort into fierce courage you know when they're ready to take it on that, that in that particular case, it's hard to do on your own, right? Mm-hmm. You need to find a mentor, a partner. Um, you know, in some cases, it could you could be your significant other. Early in my career, it was my wife. Now, my wife and I, you know, you know, both there again, Lori met my wife. You know, she's 
She's amazing. Definitely, <laughs> definitely Gabby and Stacy have met her. She's a force. <laughs> she is a force, right? But my wife and I met at 14. We started dating at 17 and we were married at 20. Hmm. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. Three kids, five grandkids, right? But early, early, you know, in our marriage, it was her basically kicking my butt. Most people, when they meet me or they hear the podcast or they've seen you know my videos or whatever, or seen me on stage at CS or something, um, or whenever I speak publicly, like, wow, you're just you're this really outgoing guy. Well, I'm really an extrovert introvert. If I'm on stage, you know, the joke is give me a microphone and I'm, I'm ready. I can rock and roll. Right. But like, go to a party or go to a conference. I'm not the guy out there doing the, you know, meeting people. I'm going to kind of sit back and I wait for people to come to me because I'm just self-conscious of it. And it was actually, and that's a hindrance just for your confidence of being able to, you know, can I learn this? Should I take a step forward? Should I take the risk or should I raise my hand and volunteer? And in that case, Early on, it was a combination of Bob Davis and my wife, Michelle, just kicking my, you know, kicking my fanny, you know, uh, really quick side story. Are we stopping at the hard top? Are we ever hard stopping at the top of the hour? If anybody oh. has to go, they can go. We'll hang yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah. So really quick side story. My wife and I started dating when we were 17. I was three weeks from turning 18. We met in Boy Scouts. Yes, my wife and I are a Boy Scout marriage. That is a whole nother show. <laughs> how, did, how, did I, how did my wife and I get a, become, you know, via scouting marriage, right? So, but we had known each other through Scouts since we were 14. So at 17, we started dating. She, she comes to me and she goes, uh, so how close are you to getting your eagle, right? The top award for Boy you know, as a Boy Scout. And I'm like, oh, I'm three weeks away because you have to have it done before you're 18 and I'm four merit badges short, you know, I theoretically could get it done, but you know, it's no big deal. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And my wife looks at me and she goes, I don't date non-eagles. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, right. Off we go. <laughs> so I like in three weeks hauled Fanny, <laughs> my eagle with 11 hours to spare before I turned 18. And, and this was the year that you were doing your senior year and college at the same time. I was part of the National Science Foundation program at the University of Colorado. I was doing, yes, all at the same time. But to this, and in fact, Forbes, there's a video out there. If you, you know, I'm trying to think the title of it is like HP's Eagle. HP did a pro, I mean, uh, Forbes, uh, magazine did a profile of me. It was, he got done on Forbes video and they're interviewing me. And the sto this story came up about, you know, was this really true about, you know, my eagle? And I shared the story. And I get more <laughs> emails and, and such from parents who have got sons who are running out there. Now it's girls, right? Because it's co ed. Um, who are running out the clock on their eagle, wanting me. So I actually probably three or four times a month, I'll, I get on the phone, phone with these 17-year-old kids and basically kick butt on them to like get their eagle. 
you know, type of a thing. But uh, um, yeah, so my wife started early, even before we were married, my wife kicking my butt. So back to the comment around, uh, you know, self-learning. Yes, it's risky. It's scary. It's fearful. Uh, learning is hard, depending on your learning style, right? Are you a visual learner, meaning you can read it and you get it? Are you an audio learner? You got to hear someone explain it to you. Are you a tactile learner? Do you need to touch a 3D thing, take it apart, put it back together again, and you get it? In our case, my wife and I, we homeschooled all three of our kids. So our first time our kids ever sat in the classroom was their first day in college. We have two master's degrees. We have a master's of speech and language pathologist, Tara. She specializes in working with uh, uh, kids and young adults with autism. My young middle daughter, master's in forensic psychology. She's a profiler. Ooh. You want to be very careful with the conversation with Rachel because she will profile <laughs> you in a heartbeat. We and should have her things, on the show. <laughs> I, love, I love that she's married to a pastor. Yeah, she's married to a pastor. <laughs> Balance. <laughs> really an interesting <laughs> blend there. <laughs> and, uh, and then Logan, my, my youngest, has got his bachelor's in marketing with a specialty in digital marketing and works for Disney. Um, so I think they all, all three have done pretty well for themselves career-wise. But you, the one appreciation I had with homeschooling them, and I, I had the easy part of the job. I just had to make the money. My, my wife did the teaching even while she had her nursing career. But, um, you know, you learn about learning styles. I'm a, you know, I was, you know, you don't realize how big of a difference on tailoring your learning to the learning to matching that learning style. And understanding what your own learning style, what your learning preference is in matching that. Because if you are, if you learn a certain way, but you're trying to teach yourself something a different way, that also raises that frustration. You're more, more likely to reject and get frustrated and not complete if you don't match it. And that's probably one of the biggest learnings I had on, on, uh, on, on, on self-learning. And then, you know, for me, I tend to be more, uh, I'm kind of a mix of all three, but I am much more visual. You know, I'm right here. Here's my Amazon Kindle. Here's my remarkable two for my notes. You know, um, I'm a big fan of Rome research as a collection tool for um, anything I read on any, any website or anything automatically goes into Rome which allows me then to, you know, correlate it to everything else. So it's kind of what I refer to as my second brain. Um, is, is that, is that Rome R-O-A-M or R-O-M-E? R-O-A-M. Rome hmm. Got it. R-O-A-M. Cool. And actually I recently, not too long ago, I did a whole set on people were asking about all the tools I use. So how do I collect? Cause I'm a, I'm a ferocious reader, whether it be RSS feeds, I've got, I think I'm up to like 2,300 or 2,400 feeds into my RSS feed reader. Wow, just a casual pastime for you? Yeah, I'm doing three or four, right? <laughs> Someone asked me to if I would dump out my entire list of everything that's in my feed so they could load it. I'm like, uh, that's not an easy thing to do. I just can't like pull the list out. <laughs> um, you know, but then I've got my Kindle because then I mean, if you highlight it, Anything I highlight on my Kindle automatically appears in Rome Research. So therefore, oh, that's cool. Highlighting a book, it picks it right up off the Kindle and loads it 
through uh, an app called Readwise, but it ends up directly into uh, Rome. So amazing. For me, I've had to automate it because I used to read, you know, you know, back before you had digital magazines, I was reading 65, 70 magazines a month. And I kept them, and I kept them all. <laughs> That's what's hilarious to me. The bins of the magazines oh. that <laughs> I, the magazines I still have are the original, my original collection of bike magazines back when back, Oh yeah. Back know, in the day. Uh, oh, my wife has made me get rid of all of the other ones, but I, for some reason, I have this. My quirkiness on reading is, is I'm I, I'll remember the article, I'll remember the content, but if I need to go back and kind of get, I'll pick out the pieces, but I want to go back and reread it. I don't know how this is how my brain is wired. If a magazine article starts on the right hand side and there's an ad on the left side, I will remember the ad. Well, I can pick up the magazine. I know the graphic on the cover. I can flip it looking for the ad, the closest ad. And I know that's where the, that's where the article I'm looking for is. It's just a weird that's funny. work of mine. And it drives my wife crazy because I'll pick up something and boom, and I nail it. She's like, you're weird. You're just weird. I know I'm weird. (laughs) Well, clearly, clearly, we have lots of room for a part two with Phil McKenney. I think that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Phil, for being here with us today. This has been this has been a fascinating conversation. I've loved it. Uh, Karen, she had to take off. She was so grateful. yeah. We we have a we have a small but mighty tribe here and and the folks that that weren't able to come today you know they'll they'll pick it up we'll we'll release this one in a, probably about two weeks yeah. it'll go out there and go live um, if you guys have questions for Phil that we didn't get to or things that you want to know uh, Lori's got his inside line and can ask him just about any day <laughs> <laughs> so e- either drop them in here before you go or post them over on the bartender network and we'll make sure that. That, uh, yeah. that Phil gets the question. And we will definitely look for a time uh, later on this year to, to, to have a part two, and we'll invite Phil to our HR story off that we're gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's give Phil some big ups for being here today. Woo-woo. <laughs> All right, for those of you that are gonna hang around, we'll do our funny things, our good feel story, and then we'll go uh, have some dinner. So funny things, funny, funny thing. Number one today, my favorite coworker in meetings, 2019, whoever brought snacks, 2020, whoever offers to take notes, 2021, whoever cancels the meeting. (laughs) 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 Then the next few tweets, uh, are from the mouth of babes section here. Um, me and my five-year-old were freestyling and he said, hexagon, pentagon, Ramadan, Shaka Khan. <laughs> uh, I told my son he needed to clean his room and he said, maybe later I have a headache. I told him that was no excuse. And I heard my husband snort laugh from three rooms away. <laughs> uh, this, this two-year-old cracked me up and made me question his environment. Maybe he grew up in the corporate bartender here. 
Are you effing kidding me? My two-year-old clears the bell in the middle of PetSmart upon seeing a snake in real life for the first time. Oh, here's, here's one on cause and effect. Cause, Tony plays his synthesizer 20 minutes every day. Effect, he's a big nerd. Oh, and you know... You know, kids say the darndest things, but so do 80-year-olds. New neighbor moved in, lady in her 80s, met her two sweet dogs this morning named Houston and Houston. One is pronounced like Houston, Texas, and the other is pronounced like Houston Street. And asked her why, and she said, deadpan, to stir shit up. I live for it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and my, my favorite funny thing today, I think this is my favorite one. Yeah, f- from the from the Twitter account, places where cats shouldn't be. <laughs> oh, uh, no. t- today's today's good feel story. This is a local one, and I'm going to I'm going to play it out of the browser because I couldn't get it to load into um, mm. into into my uh, PowerPoint deck today. So here we go. Um, oops, that's the wrong one. Let me share that one browser tab, this one. There you go. And this video, let me play this from the top here. Following the deadly shooting at a King Super grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, you guys got the audio? JJ Whitmer was scared. I can't imagine what it would be like to be one of those family members from one of the victims. He knew other people were just as afraid as he was. So JJ and his mom went to grocery stores in the area and handed out flowers to employees. Flowers make people happy and smile. And I just knew that they were going to be a little bit scared to go to work that day. So that's why I decided to hand out flowers. JJ gave out about 80 flowers to frontline workers, making their day. One of the employees said that they were scared to go to work and do what they were doing then and i just was happy for them to that they grabbed themselves together and went he said he was flabbergasted by some of the reactions there was this uh one woman in the bagging area and um i gave her a rose and she just started crying and giving me hugs and It started to make me tear up. (laughs) JJ said he hopes his good deed inspires others. He wants to start a chain reaction of kindness. Take action. Don't think about doing it. Do it. Caitlin O'Kane for The Uplift. That's awesome. Pretty good, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. I love that. Don't think about doing it. Do it. it. Take it to civil court, uh, which often can't happen right now. Uh, Next video, cue it up. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Not a a good Phil story. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, CBS, for pumping the feed. Uh, So (laughs) today's semi-quarantine cocktail, I was real busy. So today's uh, cocktail is moonshine in a jug. That's all I got for you today. (laughs) Just moonshine in a clay jug. My my parents are from West Virginia. What can I tell you? Guys, thank you so much. Wednesdays are my favorite days. You're my favorite people. I love each and every one of you. Phil, thank you for being thank with you. us today. So yes, awesome. Thank you. We will see you guys again next week. Phil, I look forward to that HR off. See you soon. <laughs>
See you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour, please share it with your friends. If you want to join our tribe, head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB or email us at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again. And remember, you've always got friends at the Corporate Bartender. <laughs>